I'm going to do right now is I'm going to transition to get into the book of Daniel. So if you guys want, why don't you open up to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Uh, if you don't know where the book of Daniel is, it's totally fine. Just check out this, the table contents and uh, locate it. It's totally fine. If you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, um, go ahead, keep this. It's our, it's our gift to you guys. We want you all to have uh, Bibles. Um, so what I want to do this morning is I want to begin with kind of a question and uh, just a hypothetical, and I, I want you to think with me. I got a little uh, slide, and I'll show this, and we'll go here. So let's just say that you are invited to manage a paper company. Let's just hypothetically say that it's somewhere in Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, what would be the number one quality that would be needed for you to do this well? What would be the number one quality that you would be needed to do this well? So um, just by way of trivia, um, you, you, don't, you don't have to give the answer yet, but um, how many, what, what are some of the other managers, because obviously you guys all know that Dwight Schrute never became a manager, right? Or maybe he did. Did he, like, last season? That's right. Uh, who, what are some of the other managers for uh, Dunder Mifflin? Anybody else? Andy, right? Michael Scott, of course. Michael Scott. Who else? Who? D'Angelo, yeah. Robert California, right. Will Ferrell, yes. Why, why are we doing this? But Because it's fun. Um, but anyways, let's go back into the story, because I think this all plays into the important storyline that we're going to look at here this morning. So let's go back to the question. What's the number one, uh, and I'll even describe it as an intangible quality, meaning you can't see it, you don't necessarily feel it, but you know when it's not there, you know when it's there. What's the number one quality you need to be able to, to, to rule well? Trust, loyal. Those are good. Honesty is good. What else? Leadership. Good. I'm looking for a bigger, bigger, bigger word. Keep, keep digging. What else? People skills. What? Vision. Vision's good, but... I'm looking for another word. Wisdom, yes, because you were at, who said that? Yes, okay, someone said wisdom. Who said wisdom? Yes, good job. Wisdom, you need wisdom. You need wisdom. Um, in order to rule well, and we, we all know, if you're familiar with the you know, story, uh, none, of those, none of those people had really wisdom, like definitely not Dwight Schrute. He had, he had power, right, power hungriness, if you want to think of it that way, uh, but not wisdom, so what I'm going to talk a little bit about today in the subject matter that we'll be looking at in Daniel chapter 2 is the importance of wisdom. Because with it, with it, God promises life. Without it is the opposite, which is folly or foolishness. Um, and within the realm of folly or foolishness, uh, we find death, destruction, despair, brokenness. Um, that gets chaos, if you want to think of it that way. That gets unleashed, not only in our lives, but in the lives of, of people that are within our sphere of influence. So what I want to look at real quickly is just this subject matter of wisdom. I was thinking about some secular ways in which um, people have value or thought about wisdom. Of course, if you are familiar, like philosophy, that is the love of wisdom. So sophe is the word that was used there for wisdom. Um, but so wisdom goes really far back. So here's some things to consider. Like Aristotle, he said, knowing yourself is the beginning of wisdom. That's kind of funny when you think about that. It's like self-knowledge. And, and in many ways, it's very modern very contemporary. I mean, we would use different language. We would say, you know, living into your authentic self, that brings about the good life, right? Just a little bit of reframing of that phrase or the idea, but, and, and I, would, I would strongly push back on this, of course, um, but this is kind of a secular version of what wisdom is. Uh, Socrates said, the only true wisdom is in knowing you are, knowing that you know nothing. I mean, there's some truth to that, right? I mean, I mean, if you want to press this out a little bit further, you can think of it as a humility, you know, recognizing I, I really don't know much as much as I thought I had known. Um, so that, that could be something. But uh, Isaac Asimov, the scientist, said the saddest aspect of life right now 
is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. <laughs> There's some truth to that, right? Uh, just go on Facebook um, or any social media platform, and this is, you see this is just true on repeat, right, over and over again. So let's talk a little bit about the, the more important aspect of this, uh, where true wisdom comes from and its root of it. So next slide, we'll take a look at some biblical aspects of wisdom. To understand the importance of wisdom, actually you got to go all the way back to the beginning of the story, which is page one of the Bible. And in the beginning, we are introduced to God and God creating all things. And one of the things that God does in Genesis chapter one is he puts uh, Adam and Eve, mankind, if you want to think of it that bigger, broader terms, into the garden. And God tells them, uh, you bear my image. They, he, he makes human beings in his likeness, in his image. But then he tasks them with this vocation. The vocation you can think of it as um, is representing God, uh, ruling over this terrestrial realm, right? Earth, in other words. That mankind, that's the language where that the writers of the Old Testament are implying is that Adam and Eve were given dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals on the land. That the idea of dominion literally is the same concept of, of leading, rulership, kingship, queenship, however you want to define it. So again, in order for Adam and Eve, mankind, to rule well, to carry out God's intentions, what do they need in order to rule well? Wisdom. They have to have wisdom. Because what they're left with is not wisdom that comes from above, is wisdom that is sought out in alternative places. So there's two trees that are uh, indicated in the garden. The first tree is, does anybody remember? Let's, or you can, it doesn't have to be in any order. Tree of what? Tree of, all right. Tree of life, right? Tree of life. And then there's another tree. So you get got one tree. Next tree is what? Knowledge of good and evil. And scholars, historians have always kind of seen this as uh, this, this tree is you eat this tree, and it, it claims to promise to give you the knowledge of good and evil. Um, or other, the uh, Hebrew words are, are, are tov and ra. Um, good and the, it can also be translated as bad. If you want more information on this, I would highly recommend checking out the BibleProject.com. They've got a whole series on wisdom literature. There's an entire uh, grouping of books in, in your Bible that are just specifically um, this subject of, of wisdom. Uh, Book of Song of Solomon, um, Ecclesiastes, uh, um, Proverbs. Uh, some would also link Job into this book as well. But this is called wisdom literature. And the whole idea of this literature is to tap us into the understanding of how to live in a way that is in alignment with the mind and the heart of God. And so back in the garden, Adam and Eve, in order for them to rule well, they have to be dependent upon wisdom. But they're faced with this choice. Do we derive our wisdom, the source of our wisdom, from Yahweh God, who walks within the cool of the day, and let him be the one that guides us into what is good and what's bad? Or do we depend upon ourselves, living in some degree of distrust of Yahweh God? And that's exactly where the temptation was framed. So Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to another creature, is described as a snake. And the snake comes to Eve and says, did, did God really say X, Y, and Z? Um, and, and not only that, but why don't you, I mean, you can tell this tree looks really, really good, knowledge of good and bad, and why don't you go ahead and partake of it yourself? The underlying implication is this, that you on your own can discern good from bad. And I would suggest to you, this is exactly the modern day context in which we live today, that the way the world has kind of framed it is we don't need God, we don't need an outside external source providing wisdom, we can discern it 
on our own. We, again, have language in which we would say, I'm just tapping into my authentic self. My true, deep, authentic self is what guides me, and that in combination with what I deeply feel or my strongest desires, so my strongest desires plus my best understanding of life in that moment equals the good life. Um, and I would suggest to you that combo of aspects will lead to a path of chaos. Not what it promises. Every time. Every time. And that's the world we live in. And so we as well are faced with this choice. But the importance of wisdom cannot be understated. And what we're going to look at in just a moment in the life of Daniel is the story that we're going to read is filled with the need for wisdom. And then Daniel's pressing into and obtaining the wisdom of, of God. So here's a couple other passages that kind of root this theme of uh, wisdom. And then, uh, again, there's so many passages. I'll just kind of tap into a few of these. So Proverbs chapter 8, verse 35 says, all who find me, that's wisdom. He goes on to say, uh, finds and obtains favor from the Lord. Um, interestingly enough, uh, in Proverbs, I don't know if you know, knew this or not, but throughout the entire book of Proverbs, wisdom is actually described as a female. Lady wisdom is oftentimes as it's described. So there's this like depiction of humanity um, lost without themselves or, or lost in themselves trying to make sense of life and live the good life. And then there's this like reunion of lost humanity with, with lady wisdom. She's embodied or depicted as, as female in this particular book. And some Bible scholars, scholars actually believe that this is sort of a wink back to Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 3 where in the beginning, Eve, a woman, uh, broke ranks with wisdom and, and decided to make uh, her life based upon her best understanding, but which was also a way of kind of questioning God. And again, we still live in the same modern mindset or in the modern world, we still live within the same mindset where the same line of question and reasoning is going on, which is like, did God really say, did God really say this about human flourishing or human sexuality or how we spend our money or how we should think about violence or how we should think about war or uh, immigrants or did God, did God really say this about this? Or is there another way based upon human reason and logic or progressive thinking that would more better align with a life of flourishing? So again, I'm just simply trying to say is that th this is not new. The same patterns still have existed throughout all, all humanity, all history. But the invitation is always for us to actually look at Lady Wisdom and embrace her, embrace her, and then begin to find life. So again, take a look at the next one, Proverbs chapter 15. It says, only true wisdom is, or sorry, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. And then take a look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, another great one. It says, all who hear these words of mine will be like a wise person who built their house upon a rock. Again, this, is, this to me is really fascinating because really what Jesus is doing is he's basically saying, my words are the embodiment of Lady Wisdom. You do what I say, you take my words that I've communicated and, and embodied and lived out, and then you will, you will be walking in this historic picture narrative of, of wisdom. You will live, in other words, what Jesus says. The good life, if you want to put it that way. The good life is yours in and the good life, mind you, does not mean that it will be devoid of pain, suffering, and loss, and challenges, right? Because if you're familiar with the story that Jesus says right here, uh, those who hear these words of mine will be like a wise person who built their house on a rock. And the rains came, and the floods descended, and beat against that house. But it stood. 
So the good life does not mean a life devoid of pain, suffering, loss, grief. It means that in the midst of pain, suffering, loss, and grief, we have a foundation, an unchangeable foundation that helps us to navigate these life challenges. So with that, wisdom is the important thing. So what I want to do is I want to now jump right into the text. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly lengthy passage, and I debated on going through the entire chapter, so I'm going to kind of divide it up into two because um, it's very long. But what I want to do is I want to read the story. So much of it is just kind of narrative. Uh, I want to break it down because I, I find personally for me it's helpful to kind of break narratives down with um, topic headings. It's one of the reasons why if you have a Bible that has like little topic headings, you know, it's going to be a variety. Of, but here's how I'm going to break it down. So verses 1 through 11 is going to be the king and his dream, Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. Secondly, we'll take a look at verses 12 through 16, which is Arioch and his orders. In other words, he's carrying out particular orders. And then finally, chapter 2, verse 17 and 24, Daniel and his God, and we'll take a look at all these. So what I want to do, um, I just want to read it. And so, again, if this is something that's unfamiliar to you, just, just listen. Think of it as like story time, which has to be. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll make some comments as we go. So uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 1 starts like this. And then we'll finish as we're done with this uh, with sort of a contrast between Daniel and the king, which is what I, th- I think is happening here in the text anyhow. And then we'll, we'll, we'll tag that into some bigger ideas as to how, how do you and I in today's world um, in our lives, in the midst of conflict, chaos, whatever it is that you're facing, uh, tap into and discover this, this wisdom that's, that's available right now to every one of you, free, with liberality, we're actually told. So listen, here's the story. Verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, spirit was troubled, and his, slept, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that all the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans uh, be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and they stood before the king. And the king then said to them, I had a dream and my spirit was troubled in me uh, to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans and the king in Aramaic, so it's kind of an interesting like little nerdy um, point, is that at this point for several chapters, the entire original language actually shifts to Aramaic. So um, again, you can nerd on that. You're welcome. Um, Here we go. Most of you are like... I don't care. Like, okay, that's cool. No worries. I I totally understand it. Verse uh, 4. Again, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make my dream known and its interpretations, you shall be torn limb from limb. Your houses will be laid into ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts, and rewards with great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Someone woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Verse 7, then he answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and then we will show you the interpretation. And the king then said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. You would too. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make known a dream to me, uh, There is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me uh, till the time change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered and said to the king, There is not a man on earth that can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can... Show it to the king, except the gods 
And we all know that the gods do not have dwellings with the flesh. So a lot going on here. Uh, but for the most part, obvious, the king, he's, he's chartered with ruling the empire. Not just any empire, right? He's not just a manager over Dunder Mifflin. He is a king over the entire known world, one of the greatest ancient empires of history. Um, he's, he's a result of that. When your influence expands, also does the potential for your anxiety. Because the more assets you have, the more responsibilities you gain, the more need to protect what you have because your identity somehow gets tied up with all of this, this stuff. And if it gets disrupted, then your peace gets disrupted, your identity gets lost. So there's a lot to lose. So the king is up late at night with anxiety, concerns about all of this and trying to figure out the future of all of what his kingdom has reached. And so as a result of that, he has this dream. Now, it's interesting in ancient uh, Chaldean idea or Babylonian myths, the idea was that if you had dreams, bad dreams, especially recurring bad dreams, it was a bad omen, meaning something bad or ominous might be happening or befalling you. Um, but again, another really interesting thing, so obviously that is probably con concerning him because he knows he's had a bad dream, he doesn't know exactly what it is, or he's kind of playing around games with the guys that are part of his, on his payroll. Either way, he's, 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 he's even more worried um, but what's fascinating to me about this entire story is that God actually reveals to this, this pagan king his, his word, his future, the God's ways. Um, now, I, I don't know how you think about God. I think that there is a religious mindset that tends to have this kind of mindset, this idea that, that God only speaks in certain places to only certain types of people. If you're in my tribe and my tribe is, you know, X, Y, and Z and lives according to a particular doctrinal alignment or idea or ideology, then we are the types of people that God will then speak to. Uh, this, this chapter completely breaks all that, right? It is a mold that has completely been shattered because what we see in this passage is that God actually, he's not, he's not coerced or controlled and manipulated by the standards or ideologies or concepts or the boxes or spheres or whatever it is that we put up that God is beyond this, and then God has the ability to break into people's lives that are, A, not only so far from God, but have the most perverse ideologies and concepts and constructs of religion and God and gods and goddesses and whatever, as you can imagine, but, but aren't even in the right places. He's in Babylon. <laughs> He's in Babylon. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the temple. He's very, very far from God, is what I'm trying to say. And yet God speaks to him. This is just an amazing reality of who, of who God is. Uh, it's one of the reasons why when we time, by the time we get to Jesus, we see Jesus uh, constantly in conflict with the religious leaders because Jesus is not bound by their molds. He breaks their molds. He breaks their standards. He goes places where he shouldn't be going. He's hanging out with people he shouldn't be hanging out with because that's what God does. He's not bound by how we think God should live or God should act or God should do. He just, he just does what God intends to do. And, and God speaks to this powerful uh, pagan monarch and, or tyrant, however you want to think of him, and, and God does what God, God does. And, and so in this context, we see him freaking out over this dream, and then as we continue in the story, we see uh, verses 12 through 16, some more things as we re-engage with the story. Now, I described this as Arioch and his orders. Now, I was, I was thinking, like, the, the name Arioch, we don't really know much about this guy, but one thing that I found really fascinating in just reading the story is his name is actually referenced several times and two occasions within like one sentence. 
It says, listen how it describes it. Um, Ariok, the, the king's, I'll just read the passage and I'll comment on it. Verse 12, it says, because the king was angry and very furious, he commanded that the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, and then here's the phrase, to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men. So this guy had a job. He was the, uh, the hatchet man of the king. His job was to show up at the house of these diviners or soothsayers or wise men, if you want to think of it that way, uh, and to kill them. Uh, so he shows up at Daniel's house, and then it says that Daniel acts with prudence and discretion with him. And then he declared to Ariok, and then again, verse 15. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? So again, two, two times we're, we're told this little bit of information about this guy, Ariok. Um, anytime the Bible describes a person's name or gives a person's name, um, always take, take note of it. There's a reason for that. If it does it twice, there's, there's a reason for that. If there's another little bit of detail added to what it is that they do, in other words, kind of profiling them, there's, there's a reason for that. Now, if you were to ask me or press me, well, what's the reason for this? I don't honestly know. I just know that's obviously significant. So that's why I describe this as Ariak and his order. So whoever this guy is, he was obviously significant and important enough to the writer to identify his name and also identify what his credentials were. He's the king's commander. This guy had a very powerful uh, ability to do what he needed to do, which was to, in this context, kill Daniel. And then Daniel has his dialogue with him. Verse 15, he declared to Ariak, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Ariak made the matter known to Daniel. And then Daniel went in and requested that the king appoint him time, and he showed uh, that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel obviously recognizes that this is deeply serious. Uh, he's going to die. So he somehow gains an opportunity to stand before the king, communicates to the king, listen, uh, give us a little bit of time, buy some time, and then uh, the, the king responds to this. Again, which is just fascinating to me because uh, the king was not so... Um, patient with the original crew of people like he was just like get out of here you guys are lying to me and uh, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to tear you from limb from limb and I'm going to turn your house into a latrine and that's the way it's going to go unless you give me not only the dream but also the interpretation of the dream which by the way uh, making up interpretations was was kind of a, an art in ancient Babylonian myth mythology that they had these people that were part of kind of like the king's payroll that this was their job um, and so to, to kind of give an interpretation of a dream uh, would not have been that difficult for them in that ancient culture and custom. But that was not the only thing that was being asked of them. The, what was also being asked of them is to tell me what I dreamed, right? So that gets a little bit more risky, right? Um, so this was, this was at stake right now. So Daniel has this unique opportunity to stand before the king by a little bit over time. This kind of leads us in the last and final uh, segment that we're going to look at, and then I'll wrap it up with some final thoughts, which is Daniel and his God. T take a look at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from God, the God of heaven, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Uh, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. And then Daniel immediately, in response to this, says that Daniel then blessed the God of heaven, and then Daniel answered. Just listen to the prayer. Um, one thing I would highly re recommend, that anytime you're reading your Bible uh, and you come across somebody's like prayer, this is a good opportunity to slow down. Don't read it fast. If you're listening to it, 
uh, on audio, maybe go back and reread it. Just pause, slow down, think deeply about it, meditate upon it if you want to use that language. Meditate upon what's about to, said, about to be said. Listen to this prayer and uh, just thoughtfully consider it. This is Daniel's response. Um, Daniel is, we're told already, that he's been given the dream. We don't, we don't know what the dream is yet. We're not going to know what the dream is until next week. Um, so don't, don't miss next week. But then Daniel also knows what the dream is. So there's a difference. You can know what the dream is, but then know what the dream means. That, that's what we would call interpretation. So there are two distinct things that are going on here. So Daniel is revealed. Not only what the dream is, but what the interpretation of the dream is. He has some degree of confidence that this is the case. Then he goes back before God, and he says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Listen to this phrase. I'm going to point these out, underline them in your Bible if you want. But the word wisdom. To you, God, you are the source of all wisdom. It comes from you. There's no other source. Uh, The king may have wise men, but it's pseudo-wisdom. It's what the writer in the New Testament described, uh, James. So there's a wisdom that comes from above, and there's a wisdom that comes from this, this earth. So there's two different types of wisdom. One leads to life. One leads to what seems to be life-giving, but only can promise or guarantee chaos. So what we see here, he recognizes that to you, God, belong wisdom and might. Verse 21, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings, and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom, listen to the phrase, that God, this God gives wisdom to the wise through knowledge and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given to me this wisdom and might. Just pause again and reflect upon that. So there's this there's progression. It moves from wisdom and might belong exclusively, it is the exclusive reality of who God is. Composition, way in which God moves and works and lives and conducts all the affairs of this world. It's, in, in some ways, it's, it's kind of like the last few chapters of the book of Job, where Job is, is profoundly suffering in the midst of his grief, asking questions, God, where are you? How come you're not showing up? How come all this suffering has happened? How come I have these friends that really aren't friends that are just giving me really bad advice, and it's, it's, it's actually causing more grief and conflict to my soul. Then God, at the very end, he's just like, Job, do you even know what wisdom is? Uh, consider Leviathan. He starts, like, whipping out these, like, massive animals that, that, are, that are extreme. They're, they're good because they fit God's description of good, but they're extremely dangerous to humanity. You know that even in God's good world, there are things that are deeply dangerous. Deeply dangerous. It just doesn't mean it's evil. It just means that we live in a world that is, there's things that we, we, we need wisdom to navigate. And God goes through this whole process of identifying his wisdom that is constantly at work, constantly being unfolded and unpacked in all creation. Then we go on to see that this wisdom is then available to anybody. And then he says, this wisdom, God, you've, you've given to me. This wisdom has been something that you have shown me and you've given to me. So it's a gift that's obtainable. I don't know where you're at, what types of circumstances you're facing in, in life right now. Or what areas that you are, you're faced with decisions. And, and the decisions are oftentimes, do I proceed in the way that I think works best for me? Or what I think makes the most convenient sense? Or is uh, in sync with 
modern conventional wisdom and thinking? Or do I seek the wisdom that comes from, from God that may be a little bit veiled and it, it needs to be pursued, it needs to be sought after. It's like diamonds that are, that are deep in the earth that it takes time to invest your heart and your energy into discovering it. It doesn't just simply come right away. It involves sometimes practices of, of prayer and fasting, inviting other people to pray and fast for you on your behalf, to speak into your life, to seek God's wisdom and counsel for you in this circumstance in your phase of life. Uh, I would suggest to you, don't proceed. And this may be a word, and I, I normally don't do this, but this might be a word perhaps for some of you. Some of you are about to make choices and decisions based upon your best understanding of things. And you've not researched it, you've not prayed through it, you've not sought wisdom, you've not humbled yourself before other people that love Jesus and seek his counsel, and you are about to make decisions that will unleash chaos, not only in your life, but in the lives of other people. This may be a word for you to just pause to stop moving forward. To in this moment, maybe even retreat a little bit, take a few steps back, Humble yourself. Gather a few good close friends that love Jesus, that are committed to the way of God, and begin to seek what God has for you in this season. Because one path will lead to what's conventional wisdom, what makes sense, and that will unleash chaos. The other path will lead to life that God gives. So Daniel is amazed by the fact that he receives this wisdom. What I want to do is I just want to finish with a little, little chart um, to consider and think about some of these things um, we see within the lives of Daniel and I think contrasted with, with King Nebuchadnezzar. Again, I think to some degree there's a little bit of a, a, a wink back to Genesis 1 through 3 where in the beginning we see mankind given this opportunity uh, to make a choice on their own, to discern their own true authentic self and their ways and it led to disobedience to God and the unleashing of chaos upon their lives in all who are in connection to them. Uh, but what we see with Daniel is he's presented with options. He, he could choose a path of conventional wisdom. He can literally do what he wants to do. He's far from home, his religious system, his organization. He's, he doesn't have a temple to go to anymore. So how does a guy like Daniel and his three buddies maintain covenantal faithfulness? Uh, we've been looking at this the past few weeks. Um, so I'm not going to unpack all that. But the fact of the matter is, is that he does. And in this context, he's faced with crisis. What do I do? And he seeks God. And in the midst of this, God breaks through the darkness, through the mystery. He gives him everything he needs and, and elevates Daniel. He, he begins to rise. And so I, I see these four things. I'll go through these real quick. Number one is I see Daniel ruled by wisdom. I see King Nebuchadnezzar ruled by self. His best understanding, or if you want to think of it this way, ruled by the advice or counsel of pseudo-wisdom. Because that's, that's what these guys were called, by the way. They're called wise men. Wise men. Um, the soothsayers and the Chaldeans and all this. They were wise men. Pseudo-wisdom. Uh, I see with Daniel that he had courage. That was a byproduct. I mean, we, we see this with Daniel, that he actually goes before the king. Imagine this. World demigod, right? right? He's, he's standing in front of, like, the tyrant of all the known world. And this guy, you, he's not to be trifled with. You don't want to mess with Nebuchadnezzar. We, you already know what he's capable of. He's already put out this decree, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And Daniel's like, hey, king, listen, can I have a little bit more time? Dude, that takes courage. And with Nebuchadnezzar, I see him operating under the fear of, of people. 
Courage comes from the fear of God. It's what Proverbs actually says. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, believe it or not. Where does wisdom begin? It begins by us bringing our hearts into alignment with the one who made us, and who loves us. And say, God, I don't have all the answers, but I, I know you do. I know that you are good, and I know that you care for me. So I bring my heart to you. I, I fear you. I have courage before you. And this allows Daniel to stand before even kings, tyrants, to have the authority to put him to death. And he's able to just have this degree of courage. How come? Because he was able to, you know, here's kind of a cheesy cliche. He's able to kneel before God. Therefore, he's able to stand for kings, right? You, you can make a t-shirt out of that. You're welcome. But, but that's the fact. Secondly, I see Daniel, who is ruled by wisdom, also had this degree of composure. Now, again, the, the writer in this story um, just seems to point out that there's, there's no sense of anxiety. Daniel's not freaking out. He's not yelling. He's not screaming. He's, he's, there's a degree of composure that the author just wants us to sit back and observe, or at least it's not, it's not there, um, whereas the king is, without question, ruled by anxiety. He's having these dreams. He's worried. This leads to um, violent outbreaks and so on. Uh, thirdly, we see Daniel had this degree of humility where he was able to call out, God, you are the Lord of heaven. In other words, humility is, is knowing your rightful place. You are not the king. You are not the sovereign. You are not the ultimate end all of everything. None of us are. God is, and he invites us to understand who we are in light of him, that we bear his image, yes, which is a hugely high honor. We're called to live in something that's absolutely beyond, in many ways, our own capabilities, and yet God says, trust me, trust me, and I, I will guide you, I will lead you. Uh, are there things in your life right now that you are looking at and you're facing and you realize it's bigger than you can even imagine? You look at your life, you look at your limitations, your abilities, your inabilities, your idiosyncrasies, and you're like, I don't know how I can be faithful to do what God has asked, what I think God has asked me to do. And, and this is where the wisdom of God comes in and the power of God begins to carry you to do what he calls you to do. That's what humility is. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar is definitely ruled by a degree of, of arrogance. And then finally we see Daniel has a sense of compassion. This is this little passage here. I'll read it. This is what he says. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch in verse 24, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Again, that's another interesting phrase because it gets used over and over and over again, at least three times, I think, in, in my count. To destroy the wise men of, of so what, what's the king's agenda? Just kill. Just kill. Anybody that doesn't line up with me, just, just kill them. Which, which um, uh, we, we might not have the power to kill, but here's what we do. We, we just, like, you know, shut them down. We block them on Facebook. We just, like, go to a different church. We just shove people out of our... That, that's, that's killing. It's, it's a form of killing. It's a form of just being dismissive. I don't like you. I don't like what you stand for. I don't like who you are. Or I don't want to work through my own stuff to kind of work through. So I'm, I'm done with you. And this is, this is, this is standard fare. In, in humanity, but, but Daniel, listen to this, Daniel is amazing. He says, uh, he went and he said to him, this guy, Ariad, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Why is Daniel concerned about these guys that he doesn't even know? Or if he does know them, they're, they're an entirely different other than him. Because Daniel has been in contact with the living God. And when you have had contact with the living God, uh, compassion begins to replace violence. Nebuchadnezzar, all, all he knew was violence. Because his world was one of just one constant, ongoing anxiety. Daniel, totally different world. 
And it's really not until we ultimately get to Jesus in the New Testament, we see the true embodiment of wisdom. So if you want to think of it this way, what, what, what would true wisdom look like embodied? Because Daniel, at some point, he, he's a human being. We're not looking at Daniel to try to emulate the life of Daniel. I mean, there are character traits in Daniel that are just awesome. You know, there's nothing bad mentioned at all about Daniel, at all, it's, which is unique because the, the Bible has no problems pointing out the flaws or idiosyncrasies of its, of its characters. Daniel is one of those guys that nothing negative is actually said about him at all, which is amazing. Um, but it's not until we get to Jesus in the New Testament that we actually begin to see what does the true wisdom of God actually look like being lived out. Uh, John starts with this phrase, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the knowledge, the information, the understanding, the processing, the reality of who God is, this invisible, intangible reality. But that intangible reality of wisdom, goodness, begins to take upon a body, flesh and, flesh and blood. And that's what we see in Jesus. Paul the Apostle was, was radically transformed by this Jesus. So when we see the, the wisdom of God being lived out, what the wisdom of God being lived out looks like, it looks like everything Jesus did, bringing peace to places of chaos, bringing dignity to people that were castigated, cast off, or in the margins of society, responding to people's needs, felt needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs. That's what the wisdom of God is. Listen to how Paul would describe this. This, this is amazing. I'm going to wrap it up with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 says this, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Which, you know, this is kind of an interesting phrase. Is not many of you are wise or of noble birth or powerful. Um, I, I wonder, I wonder if when Paul was writing this, was he thinking about maybe even Daniel? Because these, some of these are words actually that describe Daniel. Daniel was one that was of noble birth. And he had wisdom, right? Um, but Paul's looking at this community in Corinth, which were once part of this culture of philosophy. Like, talk about Socrates and Plato and, all, and Aristotle. All, th this church was heavily influenced by the writings and teachings and ideas and ideologies of those incredibly great writers. And Paul's writing them. He's like, look, you, you, look at you guys. You, there's nothing, like, uniquely great about you. And yet what has happened within you is absolutely mind-blowing because we have a God that doesn't look at the standards that other people look at. We have a God that looks past all that, that God is just simply looking to people that no matter what type of brokenness or chaos or grief or loss, whatever status they find themselves in, all they have to do is turn to this God, and this God then responds and reacts and welcomes and transforms and, and gives himself in total to this community. And Paul's looking out at this community and he's just like, I'm, I'm amazed at you because there's nothing really profoundly unique about you. He says, but, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, here's the phrase again, just in case you missed it, who became to us the wisdom of God. 
So the wisdom of God, something we need, ultimately embodied in Jesus. So I don't know where you're at, what types of circumstances, or even how this word speaks to you, but I'm going to hand the mic over to my good friend Vicky now, and she'll kind of close out the session. And what I want to do right now is I would just want to want to prime your heart to just ask you to, uh, how about we all stand, we'll have the worship leaders come on up, and then just to be prepared, asking God, God, what do you have to speak to me, and how do you want me to respond? What will response to you look like?